excited to be back and be recording. Even though I recorded this episode prior to maternity leave, I'm still recording this intro now. And I am, I totally have loved the last five weeks. And I hope that you guys like the pictures that you got first being in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group of Hendrix. He's doing great, gaining a lot of weight. He's gained two pounds in the last month that he's been alive. So uh, we are all doing great here. Now I'm excited about today's guest. Uh, She actually reached out to me and uh, said that she is an advocate for children and that she'd love to be on the podcast. And one of the things that she brought up that she wanted to talk about was how the opioid crisis has affected the, the foster care crisis. And we know about the opioid crisis. I feel like you'd have to be under a rock to not know how many um, overdoses and people that are addicted to opioids, how much that has become an epidemic. So uh, I was very interested because amazingly, I have not had anybody on uh, to talk about this. So she's an attorney. Her name's uh, Natalie Chavez Fisher. Uh, She's an attorney. I'll tell you a little bit more about her in a second, but um, I was excited to talk to her about this. So you're going to hear me in this episode probably get a little opinionated about how I feel about opiate uh, uh, treatment and how our country views um, treating people that have uh, substance use disorder specifically when it comes to opiates. So I get a little passionate there and opinionated. Um, but it's something that's really real and happens to so many people, um, so many great people. Of course, addiction uh, doesn't see any race or class and affects everyone uh, from all backgrounds. So I, I feel like if you're listening, you probably know somebody that has been affected by the opioid crisis. And um, it's the reason why so many children are entering care and why we see poor outcomes um, and less reunifications. So Natalie is actually an attorney who has seen this and and seen kind of the uptick in cases because of the opiate crisis. She's a best-selling author, third-generation attorney, and executive producer for the feature documentary Foster Care Perfect Imperfection. She lets you know, too, that you can watch that documentary if you need some foster care uh, continuing education hours. So um, I'm going to link to all of those things. But she's a leading expert in foster care adoption, and she's committed to helping improve the lives of vulnerable children and their caretakers. She believes broken systems break children, and she's dedicated her life to help foster healing. She's been honored with the Congressional Angel and Adoption Award for her work in child welfare. I think that you're going to see that she's an open book. Um, She's written a book. She's done the documentary, and she's here to share her perspective with us today. So without further ado, I'm going to roll that intro, and you can meet Natalie. I'm Rebecca Britt, and this is the Stable Moments Podcast. I started this podcast to understand from all perspectives how we can help end the foster care crisis. The overwhelming response was we need to support our local communities. Unwanted, abandoned, orphaned children are the community's responsibility. We must support, guide, love, invest, raise up generations that will nurture, love, and support their own children to end this crisis. So the purpose of this podcast is to build an army of people that are interested and willing to take responsibility of our foster youth and who are supportive of foster and adoptive families. 
This is the on-ramp for people who want to get involved but might not know where to start. I want this to be a place where community members feel like they can make a difference, where they feel good enough to make that difference, and believe that they can be a big deal in the life of a child. Thanks for being part of our community and make sure to join the conversation in the Stable Moments podcast Facebook group. Together we can end the foster care crisis. Thank you so much, Natalie, for joining us on the podcast, and thank you for reaching out. Um, I'm excited to sit down with you today. If you could just go ahead and introduce yourself a little bit, tell us a little bit about where you came from in your childhood. Yes, I will. So my name is Natalie Chavis Fisher, and I always tell people it's Chavis like Davis, (laughs) and then Fisher's my married name. Um, So yeah, so I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I grew up with parents who love to give. So I grew up sort of understanding that that's part of life. That certainly should be a part of life. Uh, I'm a third generation attorney. My father is an attorney and I watched him all my life fight and advocate for those who um, just could not advocate for themselves. So I remember, um, I was telling someone the other day, I remember when I was a child and I got sick, you know, you don't stay home by yourself when you're sick and you certainly don't go to the center. You go to work with your parents. So I would go to work with my dad. I sit, in the court, I sit in the courtroom with him and I would just be sitting on the bench just looking up at him like this. I mean, just wide eyed and so excited. Like, oh, I could, this is me. This is so me. So I always knew I was going to practice law and I knew it was going to be in a way to help people, not so much business transactions, which there's nothing wrong with that. But I just knew that part of me. And on my mom's side, all the way up to her, her grandmother, our family always took in children who were not biologically related. And that culminated in my aunt becoming a licensed foster parent. And I didn't realize because I'm just growing up with foster cousins. I didn't realize how, but that's like a a system or a separate system. I didn't understand the depths. I just knew I had some new cousins. And to this day, those cousins are grown. They attend all family reunions. They are my cousins. So I grew up around foster care, sort of in that regard. And when I first started working for my father, he gave me five cases. And they were foster care adoption cases. When I tell you I felt an absolute love, I fell in love. I said, this is my work. I got rid of any other type of case. And I made that 99% of my practice because I, I, I just see it as, as good work. What kind of work was your dad doing or what kind of law was he practicing to be able to get those types of cases? Yeah, so he's a general practitioner, right? So he had okay. so a little bit of everything, a lot of criminal defense, some family law, and He's given it all to me, but then he used to do foster care. And, he, and also, I was a public defender at, at one point, which means I represented the biological mothers and fathers who were, uh, who were doing the abuse or certainly accused of abusing. And what I got to do there was help rehabilitate some services, things of that nature. And in, the, in some cases where you know what was alleged wasn't true, I got to advocate for them, but certainly help them uh, terminate their parental rights voluntarily if that's what they decided to do and things mm-hmm. of that nature. Um, so yes, I, and I'm a volunteer CASA worker, so I've seen it from so many angles. I just consider myself an advocate for the child, no matter how it branches off. It doesn't matter to me. I'm advocating for these children. I love it. I love it. Um, how does that work? Does the state retain you as an attorney for, do they see you as an attorney for the child, or do they see you as an attorney for the biological parents, or could it be either? Yeah, no. Both? Well, sort of. <laughs> So, <laughs> so, so when you are a public defender, you are considered to be an attorney for like the parent that you're representing. Mm-hmm. When you are an adoption attorney, you're not one of their attorneys, but you're seen as an adoption, an, as an attorney for the foster parents who are adopting. Um, so mm-hmm. while, yeah, and in most all states that uh, have foster care systems, which is every single state, um, has a Title IV e program. And with that program, the, the Department 
Department of Child Services in the respective state will help pay for some of those legal fees, but it's a 1099 situation. You're not an employee of the Department of Child Services. And that's important because you get to have an independent view and sometimes you have to fight against social services. Um, so mm -hmm. yeah, so, so yeah, so you're, it depends on what you're doing in terms of how you're seen. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of a lot of foster parents saying that they don't feel like they get to speak at court or maybe they're not told of court um, or even just asking in some of the Facebook groups, like, are we allowed to go to the court dates? Are we allowed to speak? And it's like, well, of course, you should be given that opportunity. You have the children in your home. You do have a perspective that's valuable. Um, but sometimes I think that gets lost. It does. Um, it does. It just does. Sometimes they don't, one, know about the court date or two, even know what type of a hearing it is, you know, or it should not. Certainly if there's sort of a fact-finding trial, they'll be subpoenaed, right? So that's different. But in terms of those checkpoints, those 3096-day checkpoints, they, they, the information should be disseminated. And, and oftentimes, you know, foster parents find out through their CASA workers. So that's important to keep you know, that information line open. Or they find, you can call the board and find out when the next hearings are, you know, and, you know, go ahead and show up. They'll let you know if you cannot go in. But, you know, all kind of decisions are being made even in between court sessions like that that verbiage right before court or right after court decisions are being made and certainly information is being communicated so i encourage all foster parents to attend every hearing that they can yeah absolutely do you see the courts um becoming more trauma-informed um understanding kind of how trauma impacts children and possibly what services they need? I do, I do. I mean, there is definitely a concerted effort to teach all of us about trauma-informed care. And I see it in the form of mandated training um, and, and then conferences and you know, bringing speakers in who are experts in the area. I think every court that deals with our precious foster children understand that there is something more that needs to be learned or something more that needs to be that come, comes into the sort of decision making process and in, in terms of trauma informed care in florida I, that happens to be where i i live and i keep seeing these um things in my newsfeed and honestly i haven't i have not taken a deep dive into what the proposed bill is but I hear that they're trying to pass a law that would do away with the guardian ad litem system and it would more um equip attorneys to do that role to fight for children what's your thought on that and what has been your relationship with like guardian ad litems in the past and having kind of an external person that's really just an advocate for the child um, because it children get assigned an attorney as well right yes. tell me about your relationship with guardian ad litems or how you see that role. i think it's an important role because as you stated that that role is the voice for the child. What a lot of states do is they'll have a guardian ad litem attorney and then they will have a litany of volunteers kind of under that umbrella who, who are CASA workers basically. But um, so it's a manpower issue, quite frankly. If they can man, you know, the system whereby they have enough lawyers to perform guardian ad litem roles, I'm, I'm all here for it. But whatever the system looks like, every child needs to represented but I, I think that a lot of states sort of opt towards maybe a guardian ad litem but within that having these volunteers because the volunteers or, or the guardian ad litem will go into the child's home school you know you know assess the bio parents the foster parents there's so much that needs to be done and to do a good job just need the manpower and do you see attorneys if attorneys were assigned to that role would they do those things yes 
Yes, yes. The attorneys that sort of bent towards this work, it just happened in their heart anyway. Most of us are, are sort of doing some of this anyway, whether it's a part of our formal role or not. So absolutely, ask the attorneys, child welfare attorneys, you know, stepping up and doing what we need to do. Do you handle any cases where the child is aging out of foster care or, it's, or, or post-termination um, of parental rights? Do you stay on? Yeah, so typically for me right now, I do foster care adoption. So once the adoption is done, then I don't stay on. However, I've been doing this 20 years. And so what that translates to is me being able to see sort of full cycles for a, a lot of the children. Um, but eat, and then sometimes too, when a child comes into the system and they're 16 or 17, and maybe there's not an adoptable home, I've had the opportunity to sort of help navigate through those processes, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and what I'm finding is more and more states are offering, you know, aging out services, i.e., let me help you write, you know, balance your checkbook or understand what a budget is or find an apartment or, you know, apply for college. You know, I'm finding that more and more entities are providing those services because there's there's a need, as I know you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the opioid crisis has been going on for too long now, obviously, and everybody knows about it. Um, But, you know, it's also very directly correlated with the foster care crisis and how many parents are getting addicted and then not able to care for their children. And I actually have not done a podcast on these, you know, this correlation between the opioid crisis and foster care. So I'm really interested if you can tell us how you have seen the opioid crisis change. Oh my gosh. uh, The needs of children in care. Yeah. So probably over the last five to 10 years, there's just this sudden increase of children in the system due to the opioid crisis. And so oftentimes people will say, what's the difference between opioids and maybe crack or or meth or things of that nature? And while I am not a medical expert and I do not know the difference, I am told that opioids are much harder. They're harder on, they're harder to, to become unaddicted. So they're harder to manage. The abuse is a little bit stronger and the devastation is a little bit worse. Um, so why this sort of drug stands out or these sets of drugs stand out a little bit more. Yeah. So um, what are you seeing as far as, you know, success rate of care plans or parents that come in and it's obviously a, an opiate use issue? And I know my husband was in law enforcement, so he would say, you know, they'd always try to find somebody in the family that was clean and that could take the kid. But at the point where there is nobody else and the child does come into care, how are you seeing kind of the, the lifespan of um, these cases of, of people um, needing to get help uh, to be able to get their kids back? Are you seeing a lot of reunification, a lot of good plans? Yeah, I'm, I'm not seeing a lot of reunification, but also the caveat is by the time it does get to me, it's already done. You know, it's time mm-hmm. for adoption, you know, at this stage, having said that. But having said that, I've talked to many judges and magistrates. And we're just not, as a system, we're just not seeing that many reunifications. It Does it, like, are, are parents usually offered, like, drug court, rehab, counseling? Like, what is the, the typical, because it's, you know, they need services too, right? That's, oh, definitely. So, yes, yeah, so certainly an evaluation and then either inpatient or outpatient or inpatient and outpatient services um, where you go and you just, it's like any rehab. Um, oftentimes I see that parents go in service or, you know, in, in, in service for the drug rehab. 
But I also see meth clinics used as a means to get class, um, pass a patients with parents off drugs. And that's a little bit difficult because the parents that I've seen didn't become addicted to the meth. And it's sort of like you go at a certain time. They can't wait to go at that time. Um, they see it as sort of a free drugs. I'm not a proponent of meth clinics for those reasons. I think there's alternatives. But, you know, we're seeing sort of an uptick and sort of the need for rehabilitation centers. But then the parents go through counseling still. They still go through parenting classes. A lot of times when parents are strung out on some sort of an opioid, they're not caring for their home or they, they've gotten evicted many times because they just aren't, you know, they're not paying their bills. They're just not doing the fundamental stuff. And I will say the children that I see, let's just say we've all heard about it, you know, a two-year-old child walking down the highway in a diaper, you know, just by him or herself or a three-year-old making their own meal. Um, that's that's typically where the parent is back home in some sort of a stupor. When the police comes or someone knocks on their door, they're totally out of it. And typically that's a heroin situation or just some sort of other opioid situation, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, the meth clinics that you're talking about, just so all of our listeners are, are concerned, it's methadone and that's an, it's a synthetic synthetic opiate that they give people who are coming off of opiates um, particularly so that they don't need to withdraw. I don't really see any positive to methadone besides, hey, we'll make this a lot easier for you. We're basically going to give you um, a very controlled dose of the drug that you're addicted to and you have to come in every day and there's usually stipulations like um, you have to you know, pee clean, um, not be using other drugs. You have to do counseling. Um, and then there's other Suboxone as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think methadone and Suboxone can be an okay band-aid for people that need to stay in work. Like if they're, if they still have a job and they're trying to work and they're trying to, you know, fulfill their obligations, if they go to those clinics within their communities, I will never really understand somebody that leaves to go to a 21 day rehab why the plan is to put them on an opiate when they have 21 days where they could completely detox and be off the drug. And, you know, I have my own thoughts around um, that that's probably driven by uh, the same drug companies that got everybody hooked on opiates to begin with, like Oxycontin and Percocet and all of those things that were so overly prescribed. Um, that kind of started this opiate crisis. So yeah, every time, like I'll watch intervention and I'll watch somebody be on opiates and go to a, a rehab for 90 days, I think they do. And I always am wondering, I wonder if they're being um, discharged on an opiate still, because then it's just like, a, it's a life sentence. You would have to do the same withdrawal to come off of that. And they say you can taper and all of that, but it's not really, um, I, I, um, I don't know. I think that there's definitely people that can live a life with a controlled dose. Um, but if you have the opportunity to get off of an opiate, like a, a rehab that you're going to go to for days to actually give your time to detox, then um, I, I'm not really sure what the um, benefit is to keep them on the drug. Yeah, 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 definitely. It's a lot. It's a lot. It is a lot. Well, and there's not a lot of methadone and suboxone clinics are completely full. So then there's a, there's a, a lack of um, a shortage of services and people 
aren't able to get clean because it's so many days before you can get in. Right. Um, and by the time you're ready or, you know, it's three months later, you might not be ready then. So it, it's, um, I don't, I don't know if it was started with good intentions or not, but <laughs> yeah, I think probably so, you know, I mean, everyone's taking a stab at it, I think, you know, but there is some room for correction, right? So some room uh, to, to change the way we're doing it. Yeah, and it is certainly harm reduction. You know, it's certainly better than be, you know, using drugs on your own and putting your life and your family at risk. Um, okay, so tell us about one, or you don't have to tell us about one. You can tell us kind of just what um, in t what is entailed in like challenging cases for you. What's what's difficult? Have you ever had a, a point where um, the adoption fell through or? Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. So tell us about that. Oh, my, well, I've had tons of adoptions fall through for a myriad of reasons. Um, some of which are like my clients end up abusing the child or the children. Mm. And, and that's hard because, you know, you don't see it. You don't know that that's happening. You don't know that that's going to happen. Um, and that's heart-wrenching, but at the end of the day, there's sort of a relief because it stopped before the adoption got final, you know, before it became finalized. So that's kind of hard. I can think of another case where I had two biological grandparents uh, attempted to adopt the same child, and we were in about a two-and-a-half-year battle, you know. The young lady, the little girl, was once in the the maternal grandmother's home and then she decided that she couldn't care for the child anymore so it was just a heart-wrenching story it was like i said we fought for about two and a half years um two grandmothers and and so that was just hard and did each grandmother have her own representative yeah oh like, yes yeah okay so yes so it was lawyer and then we had a guardian ad litem to your point to be a neutral party for the young for the little girl the young lady and so it was sort of three lawyers and um, the guardian ad litem had a, a volunteer who would go and, like we were talking earlier, you know, who would just go into you know, the home and, and sort of evaluate both sides multiple times and help create reports. And the guardian ad litem, you know, was the voice for, for the, the child and ultimately you know, suggested or recommended that the child remain in her home where she's flourishing, which was with the paternal grandmother. Mm. Yeah. Do they ever in those situations do like joint custody? between grandparents you can do joint custody you can't both adopt though because mm. you adopt yeah when you adopt you are you know you're and it depends on the state, the state laws well the, the you definitely cannot both adopt but in terms of custody that would be in the form of a guardianship so each state is going to have a different guardianship law in terms of do two people have to be in the same household or can two people you know be in different households so um, with the case where, because um, we do hear about foster parents or adoptive parents abusing children, um, and of course those get us more emotional um, because it's supposed to be the system that is protecting the kids. So in a case like that, um, how is that abuse brought up? Is, the, is it the kids? Is it the caseworkers? Is it, how is that brought to light and dealt with? Yeah, so usually it's brought to light the same way the original abuse is brought to light. Either a teacher notices a bruise, right? The child is reporting because now the child is talking to the caseworker, what, every 30, 60, 90 days. So the child either, you know, inadvertently or intentionally discloses 
or the child is now withdrawn. I mean, all the same things that you see, you know, with the original removal, you'll see in, the, in these particular foster homes. And, you know, sometimes a neighbor, you know, will notice, somebody at church will notice something, uh, or maybe the child has disclosed something to a friend, maybe not to the caseworker or an adult, but to a friend. That friend then tells their parent, that parent's like, oh, no, 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 you know, or they're at the doctor's office and, oh, that wrist is broken just too many times, you know, so really sort of the same ways. In those cases, so they're headed towards adoption and then the child's removed and kind of put back into the same situation? Yes, an investigation is done, right, and the child is immediately removed from the home, typically, you know, or certainly, you know, the parent, the, you know, there's an investigation, so the foster parent gets the opportunity to share their side and all that sort of mm -hmm. stuff. And depending upon the specific allegation, they either will move right away or they'll wait until the investigation is done. But then the attorney gets a notice that, hey, we're not approving this adoption, we're not going to give our agency consent, and by the way, we have removed the child from the home. Mm. That's typically how that happens. And then we have to go and sort of research. There's so much that's confidential, but, you know, we have to figure out how to get as much information as we can that we let the court know we have to dismiss or you have, you have your relationship with your client and you have to, you know, let them know there's no longer a viable adoption. You know, is this something you want to fight? If it is, let's talk about that and let's talk. So you've got a couple of options. Yeah. Um, I, do, I, I was a post-adoption case manager for a while and, um, in my um, cases, I saw just a lot of open investigations on foster and adoptive parents, but it was, um, they usually ended up being false allegations, meaning the child would, you know, say something at school because they were mad at their parent, and then an investigation did have to be done, but, and the parents were like, gosh, we're always under investigation, it seems like. Um, and it can be a, such a brutal process for foster adoptive parents that are really trying to understand behaviors and, and give give kids a shot. And I, I'm so glad that there are open investigations because we know that they have to all be taken seriously. But um, yeah, investigations on foster adoptive parents do definitely happen and can feel like you're always under, you're the one under investigation when you're the one trying to help. I mean, that's a good point. And, and to your point, sometimes the biological, the mom or dad is making these phone calls, right? These, un, you know, these allegations that make no sense because they're trying to get the child back in their home. And we know every call is not, you know, just have substance. But I see that happen a lot with my cases. The children are doing really good in the home. They're flourishing. The biological parent or grandmother is very upset and they're thinking, oh, I know what I can do. I'm picking the phone up and I'm going to make some allegations. And everyone has to investigate no matter how much sense they do not make. And that gets to be, that's why I tell my parents, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And not every case is like that. So we don't want to scare anybody um, from having a child in their home. We just, just, we have seen the worst, that's all. So we're just talking about that. But, you know, I, but I do like to let my clients know it's certainly a marathon. It has twists and turns and it's not a sprint. But once you get to that finish line, it's so rewarding. So hang in there if you have some bumps and challenge, challenges and obstacles along the way. Okay, so tell us about one of your most rewarding cases or what just makes you like, oh, I love showing up to work. Oh my God. Most all of most all of them are rewarding. I know by the time you get to that final hearing, you've done all the work, right? Anything that's gonna happen is gonna happen. But by the time you get to that final hearing, it is the greatest 
feeling ever. And after the hearing, we clap, <laughs> you know, we hug when we were in person, we take a picture with the judge, we celebrate, we have cupcakes, um, we see the child smiling from ear to ear, you know, it's just fun. You know, by the time we get to that final hearing, it is, it, it gives you energy to just keep on going. You know, keep on going to the next one. I, I love the work. I, and I just love seeing the children flourish. Like I said, I've been doing this 20 years. And so what that translates to is me getting all the success stories, them coming back, sending me pictures and telling me, oh, so-and-so's on honor roll. I just had one recent um, parent come to me and let me know that the child graduated early um, from high school at 17 and had so many scholarships that she could not use all of them. You know, so just that, that's what keeps me in it anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I always think about the judge, the judges that do adoptions and I'm like, that's, the, that's the type of law to go into. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. That's the happy law. Yeah. They can't wait for that. Yeah. That's awesome. I saw that there was one, a social media viral um, little boy that his whole kindergarten class went to his adoption hearing and you know cheered him on and that's just the sweetest thing that is the sweet and i used to love that too when we were in person and you know we'd say you know invite your community so whether that's your you know kindergarten class or your church ministry group or you know whoever and, and i mean the rooms could be packed with support <laughs> and and yeah that energy that love that unconditional support is just inspiring so tell us about your book you've written a book um adopting tiger um so tell tell us about it um and what led you to to write it yeah so so the book is it's a really it's a short novel with a big impact so it can be read in one or two sittings to be honest with you and it's about two families yeah attempting to adopt the same foster child so in the foster child is tiger he's 12 years old and so one family is sort of a professional football player and by the way tiger is a up-and-coming football phenom right so they have something to connect that way and certainly his family and tiger is a biracial child this family is a caucasian family and then the other side that's trying to adopt him is a biological aunt on his african-american side who's never met him she's never met him so like what are the motives so we're figuring out the motives of each party and it takes you through twists and turns and it educates its you know readers about the system right so how does it how does what how do we navigate how do we come from foster care a child being placed in multiple homes because he is and how do we get to somebody adopting particularly when there's a challenge when two people want to adopt and i did it and then it has an interesting twist at the end but i did it because you know i go around and i speak to people and i find that there's common questions or common information that is sought out. And so I'm figuring, okay, well, a platform to kind of get this message out is to do it via a book, you know? And so I had not written a fiction book up until that point. So I had to take classes to learn about arts and character arts and all this stuff. And so, you know, my hope was always that, you know, I know the message that I'm, I want to communicate because it's in me, it's what I've seen. So each character in each situation is a culmination of what something I've truly seen. And so I'm thinking, okay, that's a hard pill to swallow. So I want to put a little bit of a buffer on it. So that's why I chose fiction, because you can just put it into characters. You can have some tender moments and, you know, kind of bring, bring it to life. And I just wanted to communicate this message in a way that was palpable. Absolutely. Yeah. And stories are where it's at. I mean, um, 
we have the Stable Moments podcast is, comes out of a mentorship program for foster adoptive youth. We match up foster adoptive youth with a community mentor and a horse to do equine assisted learning. And um, when I was writing the book for the program model, the only way to help people understand all these scenarios of how you might mentor a child would be through all of these stories. Um, and they were stories that had pieces of truth of all the things that I've seen. Um, and maybe it was six cases put together into one. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but it really helps paint the picture. Um, and I think when you bring, bring people back to, cause a lot of times we have so much compassion for kids and we don't have as much empathy and compassion for the bio parents. Um, and kind of bringing that, like they were this kid 20 years ago or 25 years ago. Um, and then you would have fought for them. There's nothing miraculous that happens at 17, 18, 19, that now makes you this responsible adult that had a good upbringing. Um, so I think, being able to shine that light on biological parents to kind of show we're all just people that had a childhood and just because we present as an adult doesn't mean that we had the same upbringing as somebody else. I think that's true and I think that's true even with adults that are not in the foster system that have no children in the foster system. I mean that that's true for me. I mean that's true for anyone that I know and that's an important point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I have, you know, even just under, if when we're bringing community mentors together, it's like, I've done a lot of work um, to understand, like, what does each mentor bring to each, um, each session, you know, because it, the dynamics that happen in a mentoring session, you know, you bring half of it as a mentor. So all of your life experiences are going to come to how you interact with this child. And when you start thinking about that, as far as all this, all this attorney's experiences and all this judge's experiences and all this case manager's experiences and this bio parent and this, and you think about all of that coming together, you know, it's really not surprising that it's an imperfect system that's wrong oh, that's powerful oh yes 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 and yes that is very profound i agree yes. so tell us about um what listeners can do to help with this broken system or with broken children there's so much listeners can do. I mean, clearly, you know, the obvious is if listeners want to go ahead and become licensed to become a foster parent, then they can do that. You just, there's, you can just Google foster care and really you're going to come up with a litany of foster care agencies in your city, in your state, and you can, <clears throat> they all have information sessions. So you can, you can call and just ask what the requirements are, but some parents don't have the capacity to do that. So when they don't do that, you can be a mentor like the program you're talking about. And there's tons of mentors programs and so it's, it's a commitment and it's very fulfilling but it's not that great of a commitment right so you still have the flexibility in terms of your home especially if you travel and things of that nature you also could sponsor a 5k race you can do some sort of a fundraiser you can do an internet fundraiser right you can you know sell jewelry or something you know have some kids get together and do a car wash and just donate funds to a casa organization you know in your county you can do something like if your child has a friend who's in the foster care system, invite that friend to the movies with the family so that they get that exposure and that attachment. You know, and, and even smaller than that, if you see a broken child, you can smile at them. 
just smile, you know, smile at a broken child. So there's something that every single one of us can do. And then of course, the easy thing, you can write a check. You know, you can write a check to any entity that has, you know, foster care as their focus. I love that. Yeah, everybody can do something. And I, I firmly believe that it's actually all of our responsibilities. Uh, we, the children in our society that aren't able to be taken care of are our responsibility. It's not, you know, the state, the government, all of that, that's us. So we need to come together and do that. And there is something everyone can do. I absolutely love that. Yeah. So I know you also have um, a documentary so for the documentary, it's called Foster Care Perfect Imperfection. And so I did that really for the same reason I did the book. I just want to create as many platforms as possible to communicate these messages, right? And so what I'm saying is, you know, the system, the system is the main character of the documentary. So it's not a particular person, but you will see persons in the documentary and it's primarily interviews. So I have a grandmother who, because of the opioid um, predicament, you know, her daughter is strung out, end up um, uh, prostituting certainly and becoming um, you know a stripper and all that sort of stuff and you know the grandmother kind of has to figure this out she doesn't know that this is what's going on with her daughter so you see her pain I mean you see what she's going through uh, she navigates she ends up being the one to call protective services and she ends up with the child and so I've got her on there I've got a family talking about disproportionality and certainly how unconscious bias um, plays into placement or adoption um, decisions made by the state I've got service providers. I've got people to talk about PTSD, complex PTSD. I have a gentleman who is, runs a rehab center um, for opioids or just any drug, quite frankly. And I've got a judge, a lawyer, all kinds of stuff. So I just want to explore the system so that people can see what the system is about. But every single speaker has a call to action. And then I've got a foster to famous section. So, you know, you know, some of us didn't know that, you know, Sylvester Stallone was a foster child or, you know, DMX or, you know, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, Marilyn Monroe, all this sort of stuff. So all this is kind of in there. And so the neat thing is most states for the book and the, the documentary now, it was a docuseries when it aired on TV, but now I just drum it together, but we'll allow alternate training hours. So every foster parent, every cost person, many social workers, right, have to have training hours. And so this is, um, and there's used an alternate learning list or certainly if, the, if, the, if these things are not on the list, you can make the request, you know, can I read this, can I watch this and, and let it count. So having said that, your, your question was, where can it be found? <laughs> um, and so it can be found on Vimeo, V-I-M-E-O. So you, anyone can just Google foster care perfect imperfection and actually you don't, you don't have to Google Vimeo, but you can and Google Vimeo and it's there. The book can be found on Amazon, on my website, or really anywhere books are sold. You can walk to your local bookstore and they can order it if they don't already have it. That's awesome. Well, I'm going to make sure that I link to the book in the documentary, um, in your website and all your socials. Um, in the show notes. And then I'll also do the same thing um, on our social media platforms. This has been, it's so nice again to hear from professionals that, you know, you could just do your work and go home, but you know, you're a voice and you're a platform and um, a real advocate for these families and kind of a champion for getting other people involved because I feel like it is totally uh, professionals like you and I that are the bridge to everyone else because really you can go through your whole life without ever really thinking about foster care or the children in our communities um, and I think even just even if you just 
have a look behind the curtain of what's involved in foster care, what's going on there, and you make less assumptions about families, you make less assumptions about children's behavior that you see um, in the community, then... Um, I, yes, I agree. I agree. Knowledge is key. Knowledge is powerful. Yeah, and then you just open your eyes because they're there. We're here. Foster children are part of our community. They're part of our church groups. They're, you know, we are, they're here. So it, it is important just to open your eyes. So yeah, so I enjoy the work. I enjoy, you know, joining with people like you who enjoy the work as well. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning. Uh, thank you for reaching out. This has been incredibly insightful and helpful. Thank you for all the work that you continue to do. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I certainly appreciate it. It's been a joy to be here. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Natalie and uh, I will link to her documentary and to her book in the show notes as promised. Check that out. Take advantage of those uh, continuing education hours that you can get as a foster parent. I want to let you guys know, Stable Moments has 17 locations now, and we seem to be getting new locations every month. So go to our website, stablemoments.com locations. Check out the locations we have. If you can be a mentor, I am sure those locations would love it if you could reach out. If you're already a mentor at one of those locations, awesome. Let us know in the Stable Moments Podcast Facebook group. Just introduce yourself. Say that you're a mentor. If you want to say um, anything about your experience or if you have any questions, you can ask them there. It's one way to access me directly um, and have me comment. And then you can also get feedback from other people that are doing this work um, and that are passionate and people can learn from you as well. So um, check out our locations. See if uh, being a a mentor is something that you can be if you have one close to you and also you know you might just find one close to you and maybe you can't be a mentor right now but you could like that page you could share what they're doing um, and get other people in your community to know about uh, something that they can do tangibly because sometimes just sharing the podcast you know people might not want to listen or take time out of their day or they don't really know what it's about but an, a, a tangible opportunity like spending one hour a week with a kid uh, can be really intriguing for some people so part of doing your part is just sharing sometimes sharing the knowledge getting the opportunity out there getting the word out there and getting more people on board for this mission all right guys i will talk to you next month